From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Wade Menezes is in the house. If you've got a question for Father, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada... We've got a number for you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson, magnificent person handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Father Wade Menezes, how are you? I'm doing great, Jack, and I'm looking forward to the EWTN family celebration quickly approaching on Saturday the 26th with the open houses at both the Network in Irondale and the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament on Friday the 25th. So you open line listeners, especially you open line Tuesday listeners, I'm uh, calling you all to try to attend if you can in person. It would be great to meet all of you. I'm doing a book signing at both locations on the Friday at the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament and on the Saturday itself at the uh, Birmingham Convention Center uh, during the event of the family celebration. So uh, it'll all culminate, of course, with a, a wonderful Eucharistic procession in the streets of Birmingham. So let's make it a great crowd. Very good. Are they going to be, do you think there's going to be any, like, uh, like, well, I'll just leave it at that. I, I, <laughs> I hope it's a great I crowd. I won't even dip my, well, I was, now I was going to go down another road. That's okay. I was going to. I was going to make a clever quip about the springboard topic, but I'll just let the springboard topic speak for itself because, you know why, Father Wade? Because that would make me happy. That's right. That's exactly right. We want to avoid unhealthy spiritual habits. Today's topic for the springboard, remember last week, uh, Jack, was six principles of discernment. Six Principles of Discernment for Monsignor Charles Pope. Well, this is an excerpt from uh, Father Mark Driscoll, who's a regular contributor for Catholic Answers, uh, from his book titled Demons, Deliverance, and Discernment, uh, Separating Fact from Fiction about the Spirit World. And I'm, excuse me, if not Father Mark, Father Mike Driscoll. He's a priest of the Diocese of Peoria, Illinois. Again, a regular contributor to Catholic Answers, and this is from his book, Demons, Deliverance, and Discernment, Separating Fact from Fiction about the Spiritual World. And he gives us five things to avoid that he considers unhealthy unhealthy spiritual habits, emotionalism, spiritual pride, spiritual sloth, casual 
occult uh, practices and what he calls ghost busting as number five. So listen to this. He says, habits, repeated practices that make us focus on ourselves rather than good or authentic love of neighbor uh, or that stoke undue curiosity about the occult uh, leave us more susceptible to temptation and other demonic attacks. The first one he lists of these five, as I just said, is emotionalism. He says, angels and human beings have immortal souls. Two faculties or powers of the immortal soul are reason and free will. Using our reason, we can think about things such as the morality of a proposed action that comes to our mind. Using our free will, we can choose whether to do it. Faculties that we share with the brute animals are senses and emotions. Our emotions are more varied and complex than those of the brute animals, though there is no denying that a dog can seem happy or sad or angry. We can call reason and free will the higher faculties, which the human person possesses, and the emotions and the senses the lower faculties, which we and the brute animals both possess. It is a serious mistake, uh, he says, uh, though one that is common in our culture very much today, to allow the lower faculties to govern our actions, our moral acts especially. Uh, This leads us to believe that a proposed action must be good if it is pleasurable to our senses or emotions or if it makes us feel happy, quote-unquote. He says, I have heard individuals justify immoral acts by saying, God wants me to be happy. Well, this is true. God does want you to be happy, but there are acts that will give us momentary pleasure, but not long-term happiness. God wants us to live in eternal happiness and to use our human reason, a higher faculty again, rather than emotion or the sensual pleasures, the lower faculties, to guide us there to that eternal happiness. Uh, Number two is spiritual pride. And Father Driscoll says the demons were good when God created them, but they fell from grace because of the sin of pride. We read in the book of the prophet Isaiah, you said in your heart, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol to the depths of the pit. That's Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. This illustrates the importance of being spiritually humble. We resist demons by avoiding the very vice that brought them down, pride. Thirdly is spiritual sloth. Sloth can refer to laziness in work or other daily obligations. Spiritual sloth specifically refers to neglect of our obligations to God. Jesus warned us of the dangers of delaying repentance and neglecting to break our patterns of sin, like in Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew 5 and Luke 12. Uh, the Bible often refers to this as having a hardened heart, like we read about in Ephesians 4.18. Another way of saying this is do not wait until tomorrow to make the good moral choices you can make today, right now. In fact, exorcists say that hardening of the heart or wallowing in the habits of sin can actually open us to demonic attack. In addition to the usual spiritual means of avoiding spiritual sloth, there is a technique that can be helpful in times of temptation, and this is an important one. Before committing the sin, we can mentally put ourselves in the future and think about how we will feel about this moment after it has passed. Will I be glad that I acted this way, or will I regret it afterward? Huh? What will the consequences be for others? What will the consequences be for me next week, next month, next year, or in the here and now for my soul? 
And what will the effect be on my immortal soul? So great questions. Uh, casual occult practices. In artwork, you know, the devil is often portrayed as a red creature with hooves, a pointed tail, uh, bat wings, and a cruel smirk on his face. It would be beneficial if he actually appeared that way. It would be much easier to identify him and resist him temptations, his temptations when they did come. Unfortunately, the devil's operations are much more insidious. This is also true of the occult practices that have become common in our culture. There are Catholics who would never consciously set out to worship false gods, but yet are lured by seemingly harmless spiritual gurus and practices that contradict the faith. These are subtle means by which the demons try to gain a foothold and lead people away from God. For example, uh, playing with a Ouija board violates the first commandment, since it is an attempt to communicate with spirits in a way that excludes God. Yet, as Catholics, we believe that we can talk to angels and saints and the holy souls in purgatory precisely through their union with God, huh? not through a board game. The only spirits that might respond to a Ouija board are demons and possibly human souls in hell, neither of whom should we communicate with. And then lastly, Father Driscoll uh, lists ghost-busting as the fifth area, uh, an unhealthy uh, spiritual habit that we should avoid. He says, there is much interest in what are commonly called haunted houses and ghosts. If God wills it, the angels and saints in heaven can speak to people on earth. He may also send them to do good works, including carrying out his justice. He may cause them to be present in a way that can be seen. However, God would not send them to earth for the sole purpose of causing mischief, like turning off and on lights, moving objects, or performing other trivialities just to make their presence known and to scare people in the process. Similarly, as part of their purification, God may cause souls in purgatory to perform good deeds or to give people messages. However, it is difficult to see how they would be purified simply by appearing as ghosts or causing places to seem haunted. Therefore, it is unlikely that the activities of angels, saints, or holy souls in purgatory could be mistaken for scary, mischievous ghosts. On the other hand, the demon's sole purpose is to entice us away from God. Evil spirits have the power to cause changes in the physical world. They also have the ability to appear as ghosts of deceased human beings. It makes perfect sense for demons to engage in these activities in order to get people to pay attention to nonsense. For example, Father Driscoll says, I know Catholics who have stopped practicing their faith, but who are interested in ghosts, hauntings, and the paranormal. These are the devil's success stories. Also, television shows, he says, about the paranormal are viewed solely for entertainment. However, they seem to present their stories as truth rather than fiction. He says, I strongly urge Catholics and everyone else not to waste time on such programs. Again, uh, this springboard was adapted from the book Demons, Deliverance, and Discernment, Separating Fact from Fiction About the Spiritual World by Father Mike Driscoll, priest of the Diocese of Peoria, Illinois, and a frequent contributor to Catholic Answers. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or 
send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Got a great book for you at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Michael Heinlein shares the extraordinary life of Chicagoan Cardinal Francis E. George in his book, Glorifying Christ, the Life of Cardinal Francis E. George. He was a model pastor and a heroic disciple of Christ, despite being told as a young man that he would never be a priest because of his physical disability. Cardinal George's many gifts, including his superior intellect, made him a pivotal player in the church affairs nationally and internationally. He poured out his life in service to Christ and the church, always attentive to the poor and those on the margins. By the time of his death in 2015, Cardinal George was regarded as one of the most respected bishops in American Catholic history. His fascinating and inspiring story reminds us that God's ways are always better than our own. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com, where they're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up today is Jody in the great state of New Hampshire listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jody, you are on with Father Wade Menezes. Hey, Father Wade. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I, I'm calling because something bothered me. The other day I was um, with some friends at the beach, and they had some friends come down, and it was uh, two men that are living together that have adopted uh, two kids. And I, I, I know them a little bit, and they've always been super nice. But I got into a conversation with one of them. Somehow I was telling him how I go to Mass every day and something. We got talking about church. And he said, well, I was a devout Catholic, but I could never be part of a church, you know, that that has the rules that they have about this, you know, love is love and this kind of thing. And, you know, I, I um, and he said, oh, I'm, I'm in the Episcopal Church. You know, I know the history of the Episcopal Church. <laughs> so I didn't say anything at the time because I felt like I was trying, I was praying as I was talking to him, like what I should say, and I said nothing. But a part of me wanted to say, you mean you did, you're doing this so that you, you're going to miss the Eucharist by doing what you're doing? Does that bother you? But then I thought, I don't think this is somebody who could hear that right now. And he is, I, I don't know. And then I thought, well, how would you unravel this now? Here he has this relationship with this other guy. And, you know, they're such good dads, I have to admit, you know. But at the same time, I'm like, ugh, you know what? Yeah, you ask a great question about evangelization. What's prudent? What's not prudent? What's the proper timing? What's not the proper timing? First of all, we know from church teaching that every disciple of Christ is responsible in his or her own measure for the spread of the faith. That comes from the Second Vatican Council's decree on the missionary activity of the church in the world. Uh, whether one be single or married or a consecrated religious priest, brother, or sister, we're all called to do our part. That's church teaching. That's from the document. Again, uh, Agentes is the Latin title. The Second Vatican Council's decree on the missionary activity of the church. Our baptism and our confirmation call us to do that. Again, every disciple of Christ is responsible in his or her own measure for the spread of the, for the spread of the faith. So my 
evangelization will differ, let's say, from the homeschooling mother of four's evangelization, but hers is just as important as mine is, even though she may not have as wide of an audience as I do uh, as, a, as a radio host or as an itinerant missionary preacher. Also, uh, the Second Vatican Council teaches in its document on the apostolate for the laity. Now, this is specifically for lay Catholics, both single and married and widowed. We read the, these words, quote, on all Christians rests the noble obligation of working to bring all people throughout the world to hear and accept the divine message of salvation. So these are our mandates by our baptism and our confirmation. Yet we have to be prudent um, when we do it, how we do it. For example, St. Thomas Aquinas's three guideposts for when giving fraternal correction. He, he defines fraternal correction as an attempt to bring back somebody back around to the fullness of truth, someone who has strayed from that truth. He says we're to do it privately, charitably, and if they're an adult, rarely. Uh, we do it privately so as not to embarrass them in front of other people. Uh, we, we do it uh, uh, charitably because charity is the queen of the virtues. And we do it rarely because they're an adult. They have to work out their own salvation, as Philippians 2.12 commands them. And I've said this, of course, before on, on Open Line Tuesday. These are important principles. So in a case like that, when it's a large group of friends uh, enjoying a sunny day at the beach and this happens to come up, I would have probably have just said sometime before the day ended, I would have said, hey, I would love to talk to you at some point and share with you more about the Catholic faith and the possibility of your returning, especially in regards to the Eucharist. You know, kind of get them off to the side where it can be done privately and charitably, two of those three hallmarks, and then see what his response is for that. And then if he's a close enough friend where you automatically know his number, uh, say, you know, I'll give you a call at some time and maybe we can go grab lunch. And then one-on-one, -on -one, you want to evangelize about the truth of God's mercy that it's never too late for one to return back to the fullness of God's graces. You know, again, mercy is who God is. I've said this many times on Open Line Tuesday. Mercy is who God is. It's love's second name, right? God is more interested in our future than in our past. He's more interested in the kind of person we can yet become than in the kind of person we used to be. While indeed taking our sins seriously, no doubt, whether mortal or venial, he never, ever, ever takes those sins as the last word. Why? Because he, we know he's made us in his image and likeness, and he knows he's made us in his image and likeness. He knows he calls us constantly to a life of his sanctifying grace, and he is our God who's bigger than any sin we might ever commit, whatever that sin might be. Uh, even the most hideous or wicked mortal sin, you know, murder, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, and so uh, we have to remember the great gift that God's mercy is precisely as love's second name. And by the way, that, that, that whole thought process that I just shared comes from Divas and Misericordia, rich in mercy, John Paul II, now saint, his encyclical on the mercy of God, titled Rich in Mercy, is how the English title is often rendered, but the Latin title is, is Divis in, in Misericordia, uh, Rich in Mercy. Uh, and so we want to privately and charitably and rarely give the truth. We don't want to bang them over the head with it. That's what rarely means, according to St. Thomas Aquinas. I would say every three to, uh, every three to four months, so about three to four times a year, we want to try to get the loved one aside privately and charitably to welcome them back and share with them the good news. 
And then you could meet your maker at your particular judgment and say, hey, I've done everything to bring my friend so-and-so back. And our Lord will say, hey, yes, you did. Well done, good and faithful servant. You attempted to live your baptismal mandate. You attempted to live your confirmation mandate. And even though you didn't get live to see him return to the faith through a, a reversion process, I say reversion because this friend of yours told you that he was, he was a Catholic, but a fallen away Catholic who's joined the Episcopalian faith, um, that uh, even though you didn't get to see him return to the faith, his reversion back to the faith, you did your part. And, and our Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. The, the great news here is, uh, Jody, is that you, your conscience is questioning you, did you do the right thing? Uh, could you have done more that day at the beach with this group of friends? I would say that, that uh, it was prudent that you did not cause a big to-do with everybody else around right then and there with his reversion to the faith. But I would have definitely, um, and you show goodwill in calling into the show to ask this very question, I would have, at the end of the day, kind of pulled him aside privately and, and again charitably and say, hey, I'd, I'd love to talk to you sometime about the faith, especially about the Eucharist and how it's helped transform my life, uh, because the Eucharist itself is such a life issue that bears on every single aspect of human life, of the dignity of the human person made in God's image and likeness, uh, even in the areas of, of human sexuality. This is something you can get into further with him after the second meeting or the third meeting. But in that initial meeting there at the end of the, of the beach day, just say, hey, I'd, I'd love to talk to you and share with you especially about what the Eucharist has done for me and, and encourage you to one day return. Don't even mention the, the gay marriage. Don't even mention his, his active lifestyle. There's no need to go there just yet. God is always willing to meet us where we're at. Church father after church father states this reality so does um, more modern-day saints, like John Paul II. God is willing to meet us where we're at. And while conversions are possible in an instant, they're not very commonly achieved in an instant. So rather, God wants fellow human persons to work with fellow human persons in a chain of events that are grace-filled to help bring the fallen away loved one back. So it, what you could have done at the end of that day is kind of pull him aside and witness to him in that regard that you'd love to talk, you'd love to meet privately with him, have lunch with him, to witness uh, to him about the Eucharist and to encourage him to come back to the Eucharist. That, that would be the first couple of meetings. And then as you get more and more in depth with him and your friendship with him in wanting to lead him to virtue and virtuous living, the, the pursuance of the good, the true, and the beautiful uh, in the way he lives his life. Invite him to Mass. Invite him to monthly confession. These are different things you can do that would come in subsequent meetings. Does this kind of help you out, Jody? Yes, but I, I kind of practically, I did actually have him on the side talking to him, and one of the things I was thinking about was you're talking about the Eucharist, and that's why I'm calling, because it's still weighing on my heart about my conversation with him. But I was trying to think, on a practical level, if he said, well, I can't go to church. I can't go to the Catholic Church, because I'm married and to a man, and blah, 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 you know. And I was trying to think, well, yes, you could, but you'd have to go to confession, and you'd have to stop the acts and move out. Exactly. Let me, let me give you, let me, help, let me help you a little bit here, Jody, because I know, I'm going to tell you, Exactly, because that's exactly when you were describing it. I thought you were kind of by yourself with him when we were having this conversation. I can tell you exactly how Father Wade would have reacted in that situation, and I'm going to tell you what that was, and then I'll let Father Wade confirm or deny 
uh, my speculations as to he. But one of one of one of the things I love about Father Wade is he is his motivations and his view of the teachings of the church are so pure and so uh, so uh, authentic that that he sincerely doesn't understand how some people would want to behave in certain ways. And I think if he were in that conversation and the person was saying that he had become uh, Episcopalian to accommodate his lifestyle, I mean, Father Wade would have immediately, I can I can hear it in my ears right now, Father Wade would have immediately said, oh, oh, no, no, you don't, you don't want to do that. I, I would, no, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Catholic life, and it's everything to, to anybody that they would want to commune with that, and that's that's not something you'd want to give up for anything. And Jody, you got to mention the Eucharist to him, did you not? I it was on the tip of my tongue to say I, I almost burst out saying, You mean you walked away from the Eucharist for that? And then I thought I should do that. All right, we'll follow up in just one second. Hang on the line there, Jody, and we've got plenty of time for your calls as well at 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We're talking to Jody in the great state of New Hampshire. Um, Father Wade, about a conversation she had with a casual friend, and um, the casual friend presented to her that he had become Episcopalian, uh, due in large part to accommodate uh, spiritually his uh, same-sex attracted lifestyle. Yeah, that's right. And, I, and she was asking, did she do the right thing of, of not bringing up the discussion of his return to the faith that particular day with a large group of friends at the beach? Uh, we need to be prudent in, in how much we, we uh, want to share with the person. Again, following St. Thomas Aquinas's um, hallmarks of giving fraternal correction, we do it privately to, to not embarrass them in front of the other people that are present. We do it charitably because charity is the queen of the virtues, and we do it rarely if they're an adult because they got to figure it out for themselves. they got to work out their own salvation. God wills them to use their own intellect and will, uh, th- their passions, emotions, and feelings, uh, all in accord with his grace to return to the truth. So privately, charitably, and rarely, we give the truth to people. And in a case like this, I think I would have just waited till the end of the day uh, to pull him aside, which she said she kind of did, and uh, share with him uh, a few things about the faith and wanted to mention the Eucharist, which she did not, and I'm saying that she could have done that. So, Jody, we thank you so much. We, we hope that helps you out. Thank you. All right, God bless you now. Next up is Barb in the great state of Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Barb, you're on with Father Wade. Thank you for taking my call, and uh, I appreciate what you do, Father, for our souls. Thank you, Barb. Um, I, I have a question, because it's so hard to discern when you've crossed the line of judgment and gossip. And, um, you know, m- most likely a guy could almost confess that daily, that that's, that's a weakness. So I, I look to the Gospels and the Passion, for instance, when the Gospel writers speak of Peter denying Jesus three times, they reveal his weakness or his sin, mm-hmm. or 
Pilate or Caiaphas or or even Martha and Mary, where, the, you know, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, but Martha was busy doing things. Um, I, I'm not trying to uh, excuse anything. What I'm trying to do is understand the clarity when judge, judging someone or or gossiping or just, you know, talking to maybe a family member or a friend over, over, over someone who's going through some rough uh, times or whatever, when have we crossed the threshold of sin? I like St. Francis de Sales' definition of gossip. He says, gossip is that which is said, which has no right to be said. Notice he doesn't even mention whether the thing said is true or not. He simply says, gossip is that which is said, which has no right to be said. Uh, Father John Harden says that gossip is idle talk, especially about others. He says the morality of gossip and its level of morality is determined by the degree to which uh, time is wasted in the useless conversation about the other person, by the failure in justice or charity committed against the other person, and by the damage that's actually uh, done to the person's reputation by those who gossip once the purported gossip conversation is over. This is why gossip can kind of overflow, if you will, into calumny or detraction, uh, literally destroying a person's reputation. Uh, but the, the gossip comes first. Calumny and detraction are, are higher levels of gossip that do more more damage, if you will. Uh, there's also a third one called reviling, where we actually revile the person uh, in conversation with other persons uh, when that person we are reviling is not around. So you have, again, calumny, detraction, reviling, uh, but, but all of these stem and grow out of, if you will, they grow out of gossip. And so we got to be careful in that regard. So um, I, this is why I really like Father John Harden's dictionary, because he gives us these different uh, caveats of how one sin can lead to another sin in a more grave form, in a, in a more grave matter. Um, so that's important to take into account. As far as judging, we always have a right to judge things objectively. If it looks like a duck, acts like a duck, waddles like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. We don't have the right to judge things subjectively in this particular person, uh, Joe Smith, for example. Uh, if, if he's cohabitating with his girlfriend in college, we can call that objectively a mortal sin. Subjectively, we don't know how much Joe Smith knows about fornication being a sin. Uh, so you could have an objectively sinful situation that subjectively, uh, even though it's grave matter, there's not fullness of, of knowledge that it's grave matter, even though there's deliberate consent of him living with her, there's not the fullness of knowledge. And remember, for a mortal sin to be present, you need all three. Grave matter, done with fullness of knowledge, and done with deliberate consent of your will. If any one of those three is missing, you have a venial sin. So you can have an objectively mortally sinful situation that subjectively, and that particular subject, who I've named Joe Smith, uh, is venial. In that particular subject, the objectively mortally sinful situation is venial. But this doesn't give Joe Smith carte blanche approval to continue sinning venially. 
he has a duty to want to search for God, discover God, live his life according to God. He will one day be held accountable for that. I talk about this in my book, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell. So we all have our duty, we all have our um, role to play in leading ourselves towards salvation with God always being the primary mover. This is why there's a great quote from St. Augustine, who suffered from a lust addiction. Um, he says in his Confessions, which is quoted in, in paragraph number 1847 of the Catechism, he says, "...the God who willed to create you without your cooperation does not will to save you without your cooperation." Well, what does that mean? That means that, yes, faith tells Father Wade that God wants to save Father Wade, and bring Father Wade to salvation, but it also has faith telling Father Wade that God doesn't want to do it all by himself in regards to Father Wade coming to salvation. Father uh, Wade needs to cooperate with God, who's always the primary mover in the life of grace, always the primary mover, the first mover in the life of grace, but he wills that Father Wade, through his intellect and will uh, and his pursuance of virtue, as this kind of ties into the last caller, uh, Jody from New Hampshire, about her friend. Um, faith tells Father Wade that Father Wade needs to work with God as the primary mover in Father Wade's life to bring Father Wade to that life of grace. Again, St. Augustine says, the God who willed to create you without your cooperation does not will to save you without your cooperation. St. Catherine of Siena, one of the great female doctors of the Church, she says the same exact thing, but very much more bluntly. Catherine of Siena says, quote, without God, I can't, but without me, God won't. Without God, I can't, but without me, God won't. So God desires us to work with him, okay? So yes, gossip can be a very serious thing. Uh, Barb, uh, we need to be careful about that. We, we don't want gossip at its most uh, uh, mundane, venial level to grow into something more serious like, like calumny or, or detraction. Does that help you out, Barb? Well, it, it does. Um, but again, I, oh, I struggle because in one of the, you know, uh, we're to admonish the sinner. Now, I am talking to myself. I'm not, you know, trying to prove or, that, this, that this is wrong. I'm, or I guess I'm not trying to defend myself. What I'm trying to do is understand where you cross that line. Now, as I when you say example, cross the line, uh, Barb, when you say cross the line, do you mean from mortal to venial, venial to mortal? What, what are you talking about? What, what ex- be a little well, bit more specific if you can. Okay, so then, I, then I go, just to use as an example, uh, Peter denying. Okay, so they denying Jesus, and it was written about him. Well, is that a is that a venial sin of the gospel writers? The fact that that to that, reveal that. No, not at all. And the, the sacred authors are inspired writers. Vatican II is very clear about this in one of its 16 documents, the document that's strictly on uh, the sacred scripture and the divine word, called Dei Verbum, uh, the Word of God. The, the sacred books of the canon of scripture, uh, all 73 books, uh, are 46 of the Old Testament, 27 of the New Testament, are, are all inspired, that the authors were inspired by God uh, to the Father, through the Son, and the Holy Spirit, were inspired by the Trinitarian Godhead to write what they wrote. So 
we, we look on Peter's three-time denial as although it was something very sad and something very terrible he did, what does it simultaneously show us, Barb? It shows us the mercy of God when in his post-resurrection accounts, when he continued to appear for 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, he asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you really love me? Yes, Lord, I know, you know I love you. He asks him a third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's kind of frustrated in his impetuosity, in his choleric temperament that he is. Uh, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And each time our Lord says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, okay? So the church fathers say that Jesus, during the post-resurrection accounts before he ascended into heaven, 40 days after his resurrection, asked Peter three times that question to counteract Peter's three times denial. So as terrible and scary and sinful as Peter's three-time denial was with the cock crowing on the very night of the arrest, good came out of it. What was the good that came out of it? Peter's repentance Jesus showing us his mercy till time immemorial through sacred scripture that God is always there willing to ask us if we're ready to come back yet. Great good came from out of that. This is why the authors were inspired to write that particular truth about what happened on the night of the arrest. So be careful not to look too deep with a... I'm not saying you are scrupulous, but be careful to lean towards scrupulosity uh, when, when it comes to things like this and, and see uh, ill will or to see sin when it's not meant to be there. You know, God never permits an evil to happen, and Peter's three-time denial was an evil. There's no doubt about that. Evil is defined as an absence of a good. What was the absence of the good? What was the good that was absent on the night of the arrest? Peter saying to the maidservant woman three times, yes, I am one of his disciples, thank you very much. Yes, I do know who he is. Yes, I am one of his followers, thank you very much. Those three affirmatives were absent. That's the good that was absent, and thus came out his three-time denial, because uh, uh, evil is always the absence of a good, but yet God never permits an evil to take place unless a greater good can come from it. And what's the greater good that came here from the three-time denial? And I use this as an example because that was the question you asked about Peter's three-time denial. The author's writing about it. Would that be considered gossip? No, because we're seeing greater good come out of it through God's mercy and being patient with Peter and asking him three times, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. He's, our, our God is giving Peter a chance to repent of the three falls with three affirmations of love, and that's a great thing. So remember that the sacred authors are exactly that, sacred authors, precisely because they're inspired in the writing of the divine word, and Dei Verbum from Vatican II is very, very clear about this truth. Um, so, so be careful to see, you know, scrupulosity, Father Mitch Pacwa, he defines scrupulosity and I think it's a good definition. He defines scrupulosity as seeing sin where there is no sin. Or he says uh, scrupulosity can be defined as seeing mortal sin when in reality it's just venial sin. Or seeing venial sin when in reality it's not even venial, it's just a daily fault. Okay, So uh, we want to be able to, to weigh all things in a balance and to be prudent in our um, in our weighing morally of these types of things, does that help you out? Well, that's where I'm trying to get for myself, where I don't, you know, see this in a scrupulous manner, you know, because I I'm reading the introduction to about life and um, Saint Francis 
to sales, he, he probably bordered on scrupulosity at times. And I want to know for myself where I can discern whether it is a sin, whether it's a venial sin, or whether it's a mortal sin. So that's why I was trying to use these examples, which I totally agree with everything you say, totally. What You know, yeah. it's, it's that... One of the things that I like about the Universal Catechism is its section on mortal sin, precisely because it's so short, curt, and to the point. And I think St. John Paul II had great wisdom in making this particular section about mortal sin and what constitutes a mortal sin, that is to say, grave matter done with fullness of knowledge that it's grave matter and done with deliberate and full consent of your will— he kept it so short and curt precisely because he doesn't want people to read more into it, because then the scrupulosity uh, seeps in. Uh, if one of those three elements is missing, you have a venial sin. Therefore, obviously, if two of the three are missing, you still have a venial sin. And if all three are missing, you may, not, you may have something that's just a daily fault, not even venial, right? So I would recommend uh, two things, Barb. Number one, Going back to the Universal Catechism and reading the section within the, the part on sin about the differentiation between mortal sin and venial sin, and mortal sin comes first, and it's a very short, a very short section of the Catechism. It's, it's just a few numbered paragraphs. And then it talks about venial sin and how even with venial sins, although they do not uh, cut off or sever our supernatural relationship with God or others, they do constrict it. Uh, habitual venial sin, while it does not sever like mortal sin does, while, it, while venial sin does not sever our supernatural relationship with God and others uh, in living out the virtues with God and others, for example, like, like love, authentic love of neighbor, uh, willing to lay down one's life for another. While venial sin does not sever that supernatural uh, charity level with God and with neighbor, uh, it does strongly constrict it, especially if, if, uh, if the venial sin is habitual in our life. So that's the first thing. I would, I would read that section, the Catechism on Mortal Sin and Venial Sin. The second thing is I would cultivate a singular confessor, a singular confessor rather than church hop on Saturdays and go to different confessors. And I'm not saying you do do that. I'm just saying not to do that. Uh, find a singular confessor that when you have these questions— he knows your temperament. He knows what are the regular things you're struggling with. He knows your background that could lead to be scrupulous as an adult. Usually scrupulosity in young adulthood and adulthood stems usually, not always, but usually stems from a wounded childhood and a wounded adolescence. Uh, scrupulosity does. Um, and so a regular confessor could help you kind of kind of comb through uh, the grayness here that you're struggling with, the grayness that you're seeing, and help you discern more definitively uh, when have you crossed the line, to use your own phraseology there, Barb, when have you crossed the line to something sinful and not sinful? But even like with gossip, I like Father Hardin's uh, uh, definition of gossip. Remember, gossip can be mortal, gossip can be venial. How much time was spent in the conversation? How serious was the matter discussed about the third-party person in the conversation with the first two-party speakers? Were you just simply saying that the car that your friend bought, you think the color's ugly, and you would never buy a car that color? You're, you're telling friend A this, right? Or let's say you're A, you're A, you're friend A, you're telling friend B 
boy, friend C, she bought such an ugly colored car. I would never, ever buy a a car that color. Well, that's not grave matter. Talking about the color of a car isn't grave matter. So it could never be a mortally sinful conversation right there. Because to be mortally sinful, you have to have grave matter done with fullness of knowledge that it's grave matter. And number three, and finally, done with deliberate consent of your will. But talking to friend B about the ugly color car that friend C bought, that simply is not grave matter. So at most, it would be venial, okay? Because you really didn't have a a right to say that about your friend's choice of car color. Again, Francis de Sales, he says, gossip is that which is said, which has no right to be said. He doesn't even bear on whether or not the thing said was true or not. To him, that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant whether or not the thing said between friend A and friend B about friend C, whether it was true or not, is irrelevant. It's simply that which was said, which has no right to be said. It could well have been a true statement. Maybe the car color was really ugly, but it's not mortally sinful. It's not a mortally sinful example because that's not grave matter. Does that help you out a little bit? I want you to do those two things. I want you to read that section of the Catechism on, on mortal and venial sin, and I want you to hopefully, what, you, what you're going to be able to do is cultivate a singular confessor, one confessor who can help you grow in your spiritual life to get yourself out of this slump of not being able to discern mortal versus venial, of not being able to discern when you've crossed that line, etc. So, Barb, I hope that helps you out. God bless you, Barb. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. I want to invite you to tune in to Mother Angelica Live Classics tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Mother explains how the church is our map while on this journey and pilgrimage of life. That's Mother Angelica Live Classics tonight, 8 Eastern, right here on EWTN radio and television father wade it's the feast of saint dominic today that is right and you know talk about uh these five areas uh that we should avoid in the spiritual life emotionalism spiritual pride spiritual sloth casual occultic practices and ghost busting uh from my springboard topic today from father mike driscoll's book um St. Dominic gives us a great quote, Jack. He says, uh, he who governs his passions is master of the world. And that goes especially with the first of the five, emotionalism. Uh, When we do not want the lower faculties, the passions, feelings, and emotions, to override the higher faculties of intellect and reason. When it comes to a moral act, whether or not I should do this or whether or not I should do that. When it comes to a moral act, I want my moral act to be governed not by passions, emotions, and feelings, but by intellect and will to pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful. Remember, the passions, emotions, and feelings in and of themselves are neutral. They're neither good nor bad. You have to know what each passion, emotion, or feelings end is, what's the end object of that particular passion, emotion, or feeling, in order to make a moral judgment of it, right? Well, this is why St. Dominic says, he who governs his passions is master of the world. He also intimates, he says, the spiritual life is not difficult, but it does require discipline. Again, the spiritual life is not difficult, 
but it does require discipline. Uh, St. Dominic was born around 1170 in Spain and joined the Augustinian canons. While preaching against the Albigensian heresy in France, he saw the need for solid preachers of the gospel who would be fortified by study and strengthened by prayer and confirmed in poverty. The men who followed Dominic in this new way of life, uh, of, of consecrated religious life, became known as the Order of Preachers, or the Dominicans, after Dominic's own name. And in his uh, 1216 papal bull approving this new religious order, Pope Arrhenius uh, looked to Dominic's uh, brethren as the future champions of the faith and the true lights of the world. Dominic died in 1221, surrounded by his friars. And you know, uh, he fought Albigensian, uh, the, the Albigensian heresy, and, and that also ties in to these uh, unhealthy spiritual habits that we want to avoid. Again, emotionalism, spiritual pride, spiritual sloth, casual occultic practices, and ghost busting. Uh, Albigensianism is, is a modified form of the Manichaean heresy that Augustine dealt with that flourished in southern France in the 12th and 13th centuries especially, hence during Dominic's time. Um, it claimed that a good deity created the world of the spirit, while an evil god uh, created the material world, including the human body, which was evil, uh, and, and which is under its control. The human body is under the control of the, of the bad god. Uh, the good deity sent Jesus Christ as a creature, uh, the Albigensian heresy would say, uh, to deliver human souls from their imprisonment of their body. Uh, Albigensians uh, favored suicide and advocated abstaining from marriage. So thank goodness uh, Dominic was inspired to help counter this heresy. Uh, by the 15th century, they had disappeared as a political force, but some Manichaean ideas um, still even appeared during the Reformation and post-Reformation. This is why I love the personalism of John Paul II and his writing about the innate dignity of the human person precisely as a body-soul composite made in God's, image and God's own image and likeness. You know, Fulton Sheen gives us a beautiful quote. Uh, he says that uh, God made us in his own image and likeness precisely so that one day he could take on our own image and likeness. And he did, not as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, but inside the womb of a woman. That's where it all started the actual bodiliness, the actual uh, uh, creatureliness of the God-man Jesus Christ uh, began in the womb of a woman. And so I love this personalism of John Paul II and, and talking about the innate dignity of the human person, etc. So yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great saint, uh, St. Dominic today, priest and founder on this August 8th, uh, to tie in to our springboard topic on uh, certain uh, spiritual habits that are definitely, definitely worth avoiding. That is emotionalism, uh, spiritual pride, spiritual sloth, casual occultic practices, and so-called ghostbusting. If you didn't hear that springboard topic as you tuned in late this hour, go back and listen to the podcast the first 11 minutes of the show. And Father, where can they find out more about the Fathers of Mercy? At fathersofmercy.com. Would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. And as my ink pen says, Jack, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, Call screener Matt Gubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.